Hello, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the world's only podcast that travels back in time to explore the history of the Bible. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm a journalist. I am here with my co-host, Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh and the one who knows things about stuff. Uh, (laughs) Helen, we've got a cool topic today. It it gets a little grisly. Should we warn our listeners? Yeah, I do feel it maybe needs a health warning. I mean, normally the worst we talk about is crucifixion, but we've got many nasty ways of dying today and, and also bits and pieces of relics and stuff. So, yeah. Prepare yeah. for, so if you, for if, gore today. If you have, if you have a, if you have a queasy stomach, if you don't like to <laughs> hear about people meeting unfortunate ends, you know, just just be warned. Um, we are talking about martyrs. We're talking about early saints. We're talking about the you know sort of idealizing of 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 dying for Jesus, of 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 dying for Christ in 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 Christianity. Certainly in the in the early days, but also how it how it persists um, throughout sort of history of, of Christianity, and and to do that we have a really great guest. We have Kyle Smith. Kyle is a associate professor and director of the History of Religions program at the University of Toronto, and Kyle just wrote a book. Um, it's called Cult of the Dead: A Brief History of Christianity. Which is, you know, we we appreciate snappy titles around here. That one, that one grabs you, doesn't it? Cult of the Dead. So, without further ado, let's let's get to our conversation with Kyle about this uh, this idea of of Christianity being the cult of the dead. Kyle Smith, welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Thank you, David Helen. I'm uh, really pleased to be here. All right. So your book has a pr- provocative name, uh, Christianity, the, the Cult of the Dead. Um, maybe people read that and and they might think, wait, is he calling Christianity a cult? Is he being mean? What What do you and and other uh, you know historians and scholars mean when you when you use that word uh, cult? Yeah, I, I certainly don't intend to be mean, and it's not dismissive. Um, it's a way of referring to all the ritual practices by which Christians have remembered and cared for their saints. So think of the word agriculture. It literally means care for the fields. To cultivate a plant or a child's love of music is to nurture it. So to say that Christianity is a cult of the dead isn't to malign it, but to emphasize the extent to which uh, the care for the saints has fundamentally shaped the culture of Christianity. And, and I would emphasize that this Christian cult of the dead goes beyond just the written down stories about the martyrs. Those were certainly very important, um, but it refers to the way in which the, the martyrs remained very much alive through their continued presence uh, in the ritual life of the church via the days they were remembered on the calendar, mm-hmm. the centuries of homilies that were preached in their honor, uh, the shrines and churches dedicated to them, uh, even the veneration of their physical remains, uh, their relics. Um, and that's really the point of the book, is to explain in what I hope is an entertaining, an, an entertaining way uh, how the culture of Christianity, for the majority of its history, is perhaps best understood through the cult of the saints. Hmm. All right. So, okay. So you're, 
you're talking about saints and martyrs are those at least in the early days was that kind of the same thing like was a saint generally somebody who had been martyred um yeah uh i mean i think so for for example um you know that we might nowadays might have this image of a saint uh as you know some sort of pious or, or peaceful person uh and while that may be the case if you look back to antiquity um or even today in the the prayers for the saints liturgically in the catholic and orthodox and other churches um the pride of place goes to the martyrs they are the saints par excellence there's there's no doubt about that um and if you look at some of the earliest calendars of the saints which i mentioned um they're basically just lists of names and dates and they're almost entirely martyrs, if not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, one of these lists uh, we, we have, uh, in fact, it's uh, copied down in the back of the very oldest dated book in the world, uh, which was written in the Christian Aramaic dialect of Syriac in uh, November of the year 411. It's now in the, the British Library in London. We got the, we got the month? We know what yeah. month it was? <laughs> no it, day? It, <laughs> exact, no, no day. No, no exact date, right. But... Um, I mean, he doesn't say, the scribe doesn't, his name, Jacob, he doesn't say November of 411. He has a different dating <laughs> system, but uh, but that's what I mean about the oldest dated book, right? There are other books that exist that are mm-hmm. older than that, but this is the oldest one that we have that actually has somebody recording the date in which it was written. And at the back mm-hmm. is this amazing list of early Christian martyrs. Wow. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about, you know, the ways that, that death and dying for Christ are sort of idealized in the early church. So I guess this would be one of them. Is it having lists of martyrs and remembering the the dates? Exactly. Um, I think that that is, uh, uh, there was one Jesuit in the the middle of the 20th century, a a famous French scholar of the saints, uh, Hippolyte Delahaye, who talked about the hagiographical coordinates of the martyrs. And by that, he meant the the way by uh, a hagiography, a, a holy story. So the story of a saint and the coordinates are where are they and when were they? So you can locate them in space and time and, and uh, recording these lists uh, and creating these calendars was, was certainly uh, one way of, of, of idealizing dying for Christ. Um, but it's not just in sort of later antiquity. I mean, I think if you, uh, the, the roots of it are right in the Bible itself, right? Um, oh. In the Gospels, Jesus is quoted as saying, as warning his disciples that they're going to be flogged and dragged before kings and governors for the sake of his name. Um, or think about how the Acts of the Apostles, for example, uh, narrates the death of Stephen, who is tr- traditionally celebrated as the first Christian martyr. Um, he gets interrogated uh, by the high priest in Jerusalem. Then he gives this long speech in invoking the patriarchs of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and then as he's being stoned, uh, he repeats Jesus's words from the cross uh, from Luke's gospel. But instead of saying, uh, Father, receive my spirit, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I mean, this was interpreted by the earliest Christians as, okay, here's somebody who's dying for Christ. They wouldn't have held him up as the proto-martyr otherwise. Hmm. I always think there must be a direct link between, you know, what what Jesus is saying in Mark's gospel. And I I work on Mark's Mm -hmm. gospel, so I have a sort of a hidden interest here. But when Jesus is saying, you know, a disciple takes up their cross and follow me. He does seem to mean that literally in Mark's gospel, doesn't he? And there, there must be then this, 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 you know, very close link between 
following Jesus in Mark's gospel and the martyrdom stories later on? Uh, well, uh, the, those who are writing those stories certainly seem to think so. I think you're spot on. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So, so we have in somebody like Stephen, like you said, it's sort of the the model for for this this martyrdom, right? So he's he's saying, you know, I, this is what this is what a, a a a an idealized Christian maybe is expected to do to, to go to the greatest lengths to even sacrifice to give up their life for Christ. So is that? Is that is that does that become the model, like like you said, for you know early Christian martyrs, like in the early centuries of the church? Yeah, I, I mean, I like how you phrased that, Dave, in the sense of that's just what you're supposed to do. So, to give mm -hmm. one example from, I mean, the many hundreds I could choose from from outside the Bible, um, uh, the first one to come to mind is Ignatius, uh, the Bishop of Antioch in the early second century who writes a letter, writes several letters, but one in particular uh, to those who might intervene and protect him from being thrown to the beasts in Rome. And he tells them, hey, you're not doing me any favors if you try to save my life. Uh, being ground up in a lion's jaws, as, as he puts it himself, is simply what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And I think once you start going down this path and reading not just about the deaths of the apostles and Stephen and Ignatius and so many scores of other martyrs, uh, it's a little unsettling to recognize just how uh, idealized this this was right this is not the it's not the prosperity gospel or some sort of you know suburban Joel Osteen version of Christianity that's all about self-actualization I mean the common thread in much of this literature from the early church is just what Ignatius says being willing to die for Christ isn't some lofty ideal but just the basic expectation well and and you mentioned being fed to lions so that's something that I think that jumps into everybody's head when they hear about Christian martyrs like is this legit? Do we do we have, you know, historical evidence that the Christians were being kind of routinely fed to the animals or, or, or killed in some way in in, in the Roman Empire or, or other parts of the ancient world? Yeah. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say it's historically accurate to say that Christians were routinely being fed to lions as if Christians were a central part of their diet or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, we do know that being condemned to the beasts, uh, you know, damnatio ad bestias, was a punishment employed by the Romans, even dating back to the time of the Roman Republic. Um, we also know that the Romans and the Persians, uh, along with pretty much every other ancient empire, uh, they were very good at coming up with novel ways of killing people. Um, mm. So were some Christians tossed to the beasts in the, in the arena? Uh, yes, I think that that's almost assuredly historically accurate. Did it happen all the time? Are Christians prior to Constantine, uh, the first Christian Roman emperor in the fourth century, are they on the lookout for Roman soldiers around every corner? No. Um, I think Paula Fredrickson once phrased it really quite nicely. She said, it's not as if there were tens of thousands of Christians being killed in antiquity, uh, but it is the case that tens of thousands of Christians were enthralled by the stories of the relatively few Christians who were killed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, hmm. that makes sense. And so is martyrdom. It's not specifically Christian, though, is it? I mean, it does have its roots in Greek, Roman, Jewish backgrounds too. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think 
uh, Christian notions of martyrdom simply didn't emerge from the ether. Like like most things, they're a product of their their cultural contexts. Um, so I think that while it might be difficult to argue that martyrdom, as we understand it retrospectively in the Christian sense, uh, that that was also idealized in, in other ancient cultures, uh, people other than Christians undoubtedly celebrated those who were said to have died nobly or or died for a noble mm-hmm. cause. Um, so I think it, the answer to your question depends on how you're functionally defining what a martyr is. And if what you mean by that is someone who could have avoided being killed had they been willing to renounce their beliefs, then I think the answer is yes, right? You could say that Socrates was a martyr, even though he was mm-hmm. never referred to as such, uh, because he willingly accepted a death sentence rather than stop philosophizing. But a more intelligible parallel, I think, would be the story of, of the mother, a, a Jewish woman mm-hmm. in two Maccabees. You know where I'm going with this, uh, who watches her seven sons, one after the next. It's, it's a horrific story, right? Have, they have their tongues cut out. They have their heads scalped, their hands and feet chopped up. Uh, then they're thrown uh, thrown into a cauldron, all because they refuse to violate the law of Moses and eat pork. And early Christians definitely saw that story as as a parallel, that sort of mm. willingness to suffer horrific tortures rather than renounce the law of your God. It's uncannily similar to the mm. contours of, of many of our martyrdom stories from Christianity. So, well, you mentioned Stephen. So how... How many how many of the apostles do we actually see <laughs> martyred? I mean, this, I don't want to get too gruesome here, but like you know, how many get martyred within the New Testament itself? And then don't we have these sort of traditions and other you know extra biblical stories about how the martyrs? I'm oh, no, sorry, how the uh, how the apostles themselves kind of died, right? Right. Um. Uh. Well, I mean, Stephen was. Uh, a bit later, um, not one of the twelve, um, but I mean, no. there are there are many different versions of the deaths of the apostles. I mean, so many different versions just of Peter and Paul alone that uh, my colleague David Eastman once published a book entitled "The Many Deaths of Peter and Paul," where he collects all of these different <laughs> stories. Um, I mean, a lot of them are contradictory uh, in, in where or how and when uh, or even why they say that this or that apostle was killed. Um, but there are a lot of consensus traditions. Peter was was supposedly crucified upside down in his case. Uh, Paul beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed, um, which means he had his skin peeled off if flayed isn't a word in your everyday vocabulary. Um, Simon. <laughs> Not much. Yeah, exactly. Thankfully. Thankfully. Um, Simon was supposedly sawn in half in Persia. Thomas was speared in India. And I mean, what I think is is really fascinating about a lot of these stories is how early Christians used them as a means of saying something, yes, about the apostles, um, but also for justifying certain other ideals uh, mm. that were important to the Christians who were writing these stories. Um, so, for instance, there's a large focus in many of them, perhaps surprisingly to many, on virginity and celibacy. So in one version of Peter's martyrdom, we're told that Peter somehow has access to the Emperor Nero's concubines and that he was trying to convert them all to lives of chastity, Uh, not something that's going to endear him to the emperor um, very much. (laughs) And you've got a similar story about Matthew, who supposedly converts to a virgin and a nun, this young woman uh, that the king of Ethiopia, of all places, uh, was wanting to marry. So 
you, you know, they, they don't make a whole lot of sense in terms of explaining like how or why the apostles died. Um, I mean, I think we can start with the fact that there weren't nuns in first century Ethiopia. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not historically useful, right? I mean, I, I, in fact, think that they're incredibly useful, but for what they tell us about the later generations of Christians who produced these stories, about what they found interesting and what they wanted to say uh, about the deaths of the apostles and whatever the, uh, other theological conclusions could be made from that. Well, because those, those stories were being written, how, how late are we, are we thinking? I mean, you've got some of them that are being produced or rewritten uh, deep into the Middle Ages. So can you tell us a bit about the um, the martyrdom of Polycarp? That's one of the early ones, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this, uh, this is a fabulous story. Um, one of the most, if not the most important martyrdom story from early Christianity. Um, it tells the story of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. This is uh, modern-day Izmir on, on Turkey's Aegean shore. And according to the story that we have about him, there was some sort of local persecution going on in his city. Um, Polycarp had kind of quietly retreated to a country estate rather than be caught up in the fray. But, but eventually he gets arrested. He gets dragged into Smyrna's arena. He's interrogated. He's bound to a stake and he's going to be burned alive. Um, as it turns out, the, uh, he's miraculously saved from the flames. The flames kind of go around him like a cocoon. Um, so he ends up getting run through by a sword instead. Um, and there are many things that are important about this text, uh, not the least of which I think are the many parallels between Polycarp's death and that of Jesus. So Polycarp is led into Smyrna on the back of a donkey. He's then interrogated by a man named Herod. Um, gets a little, little obvious in some places. Um, but what, do, what this does is, on the one hand, it helps further this idea of the martyrs as imitators of Christ, right? Other Christs, as Candida de Moss once uh, put it as the title of one of her books. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting here is uh, when this text was written, uh, it purports to have been written by an eyewitness in the middle of the second century. So that would give us an amazing glimpse into uh, the reality of, uh, or at least the purported reality of second century Christianity. But as Moss and a number of others have looked at this text, um, it might be a little bit later, maybe not until sometime in the in the early third century. Um, part of that has to do with the uh, the focus on Polycarp's remains, his relics. Uh, the, the text talks about Christians uh, swooping in after after he was dead, not to give him a proper burial, but to take away these bones and deposit them Ooh. in a fitting place, right? And, and the text actually says that the, the, the Christians regarded these bones as more valuable than gold and jewels, right? And that they would that they would go to this place annually on the anniversary of his death uh, to remember him. So we've got right there we talked earlier at the beginning of, uh, of this about the cult of the saints, and that is what really shows up very heavily in this text. Um, so it would be really nice to know exactly when this was written and to what extent uh, that element uh, reflects uh, a particular period in the, in the history of the development mm. of Christianity. Wow. Well, wait, I want to get to these. All right, I want to get to these bones in a minute, okay. but I, I, I just, I thought of something else. And since you said there in these stories, there's some explicit, you know, references to to the passion narrative, and people have similar, you know, sort of fates and similar steps along the way before they're martyred. I mean, do any of them? I, 
hope this is not blasphemous. I mean, do, I have, do any of them get, you know, resurrected? Do any of them kind of come come back in any kind of form and then go up to heaven? Or is that not part of these stories? Um, I can't think offhand of one in which any martyr is bodily resurrected after they are killed uh, on earth. But the, I mean, the part of the idea behind the importance of the relics is that uh, the saints are somehow still present in their physical remains, that they're glorified in heaven and yet then physically present in their bones uh, on earth, which is uh, in large part what drove the importance of venerating these relics, right? It was a conduit to heaven. It was a conduit uh, to God uh, because the saints, namely the martyrs, were especially close to the ear of God. Maybe you could phrase it like that. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah. So, relics. So, when you when we use the word relics, are we mostly talking about bones and, and bodily remains? Is that, is that what we're talking about? That's typically the case, um, though it could really have been anything that uh, that the saint or the martyr touched or wore or, or used in, in their life. So, for example, uh, we have plenty of relics associated with Jesus, just not bodily ones for obvious reasons that Christians believe he was resurrected into heaven. Um, but you have, so what do you have? You, well, you have the, the elements, the, you know, the tools of Roman torture that touched him uh, mm-hmm. during his execution. So you've mm-hmm. got the splinters from the cross. You've got the holy nails. You've got the, the holy lance. You've got the crown of thorns, uh, which was uh, eventually, at least what was thought to be the crown of thorns, eventually made its way to Paris in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. was kept in Notre Dame and was saved by the fire brigade, uh, the Parisian fire brigade during the, the terrible fire at Notre Dame. There is one part of Jesus's body that remained, though, wasn't there? <laughs> Jesus's foreskin. Yes. I'm sorry to lower the tone. Whoa, I always whoa, seem to lower whoa, the whoa. tone, but this could be a but whole there, episode. Of its own. Oh. Multiple, multiple foreskins as well, as I seem to remember. I mean, not that I've ever made a study of it, but um, I seem to remember that somewhere, dredging it up from the back of my memory. Yes, that's, that's right, Helen. And uh, in addition to that, there are supposedly <laughs> vials of Mary's milk floating around as well. Mm. So, oh, wow. Um, you know the bits and pieces that could be kept seem to have been kept. Wow! And so how <laughs> how were these yeah how were these relics venerated or what how like I think you said they became sometimes they were kind of put in little altars in in early churches they're kind of built into parts of the church right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we have multiple uh, church councils in early Christianity that say uh, an altar and by extension a church couldn't be properly consecrated without the relics of a martyr being installed within it somewhere. Mm. Um, and I, I would immediately stress that this isn't just some sort of historical oddity. I mean, this remained the practice in uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you go to uh, an Orthodox liturgy or a, a Byzantine Right Catholic liturgy. Uh, what is the cloth that is laid upon the altar? It's called the, the anti-mens or the, the anti-mention. Um, it has to have a relic of a saint sewn into it. Uh, mm. And it's these these cloths are signed by bishops. It basically becomes a, a, a priestly license to say the divine liturgy, right? So this isn't just uh, something that's that's ancient. Um, but we have many stories uh 
one of the most interesting ones that I think uh, about the first sort of translation, and by translation, we, uh, we mean the movement of the bones uh, of, a, of a martyr or a saint. Um, one of the first stories that we have about a saint's bones being translated to an altar comes from a letter that St. Ambrose of Milan uh, wrote to his sister in the year 386. And he's explaining to her how his congregation was on his back about wanting him to find some martyr's bones and install them in Milan's new basilica, but that he couldn't find any. And then he explains how this, this ardor entered his heart and he knew where to dig. And of course, he, he has his priests dig up the spot and then they find uh, the relics of two ancient martyrs, Gervasius and Protasius. And uh, they knew that they were real because a sick man who had been at the site was immediately cured. And then as the the bones were later processed into Milan's Basilica, a blind man uh, regained his sight. But to, to circle back to this idea, too, of how it's not just the bones, but Ambrose stands up uh, before his congregation. He says, if you just, just as you read in the Acts of the Apostles, where if a handkerchief or an apron touched Paul and then was brought to the sick, it would heal them. And he says, you do the same things with these bones. Come bring your aprons, bring your cloths, touch them to these bones and just watch and wait and see what happens, just as we've already seen with these healing miracles. And is there a sort of a hierarchy of relics? I mean, presumably, presumably there's some relics that are, are more efficacious in a way than, than others. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if that would be a, an interesting sociological uh, analysis to do, is to go out and find just how efficacious they were. Um, I think certainly that the most celebrated of the relics were undoubtedly those that had touched Jesus. Um, yeah, those yeah. are the ones that were the most important. So, for example, uh, when we hear the story of Helena, Constantine's mother, um, discovering the Holy Cross buried deep underground in Jerusalem. And again, there's a test, right? She has a, a sick woman brought to the site and the first cross, you know, the one of one thief doesn't do anything. Then the second one, presumably the other thief doesn't do anything. But then the third one which must be the one on which Jesus was crucified, cures her immediately, right? And so uh, we have, a, in the same year that, that uh, Ambrose is writing, 386, we have the story of, of a pilgrim, of a nun, presumably from Gaul, what's now France, named Egeria. And she comes to Jerusalem and she talks about the Holy Cross being processed around the Holy Sepulchre uh, and that everybody wanted to touch it. Everybody wanted a piece of it. Um, obviously, not everyone could have a piece. So in, in, in later eras, uh, people would fill these little vials, these, these ampullae, these little vials with oil and then touch them to the cross. So you have a contact relic of a contact relic, <laughs> but somehow the, uh, the, the power was transmitted because at least as we hear from Egeria and others, that when these little vials of oil were touched to the cross, they would start to bubble and fizz and they would quickly have to be capped, you know, to prevent the, the holy liquid from now spilling to the ground. Um, wow. Well, you're, you're, you're mentioning the cross. And then when I, when I think of kind of cult of the dead or, or this idea of, of, of perpetuating, you know, Christ's death and, and through martyrdom, like the, the cross itself, right? It, the, the cross is a symbol for Christianity. It seems to jump out as here is, here is veneration of, of, of sacrifice and death itself. So when, 
how 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 far back do we go when when the cross became this this symbol for for Christianity? When does that start? Uh, I think it was from what our material evidence suggests that it was a symbol fairly early on. Um, I don't know that it was the most important one until really after the time uh, of Constantine in the fourth century. Um, we have other sorts of symbols, for example, just letters from the Greek alphabet, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. or the, the chi rho monogram would look like a, an X and a P meshed together. So these are the, mm-hmm. the first two letters of the word Christ uh, in Greek. Uh, you had the fish, you know, the ichthyos as a symbol. Um, but there are certainly references to the cross uh, as early as the second century as uh, as being thought of as symbolic of, of Christianity. Constantine outlawed the cross, didn't he? Um, am I right in thinking that? Is, is, and, and maybe that kind of partly, you know, helped the veneration once, once people weren't actually being killed as, um, as, as robbers and, you know, once it wasn't, was no longer a form of um, capital execution. I think that's right, Helen. Yes, he, uh, he did outlaw crucifixion as a punishment. Yes, exactly. Um, and that makes sense that then uh, it allowed room for uh, mm-hmm. the cross to then become the symbol, since this wasn't something that then was you know, being applied to common criminals. That's mm-hmm. not to say that... Uh, grisly means of execution did not persist after Constantine. They most certainly did, but not with, not with crucifixion. So what, where, where do you think this, some of this, you know, veneration of relics and things came from? Like, was, was this, could we say that this was an effective way to kind of tap into, you know, existing practices? Like was Christianity able to kind of spread and, and, and get picked up by, by different parts of the ancient world because this kind of tapped into maybe the way people used to talk, you know, treat their little statues of their gods and stuff like that. They also had special powers. Um, I think that that could be part of that, uh, or it could be part of it. Um, but this was... I think we have to emphasize a relatively novel, well, not relatively, it was a novel thing in the mm. Roman Empire. I mean, there, uh, the Romans undeniably thought, the non-Christian Romans undeniably thought that it was weird to, mm. uh, not, not only to touch the dead, but to uh, somehow break them up into bits and pieces and to then ritually venerate uh, the remains of mm. s- someone who had died. That was a very new thing for sure. Um, but if your question more specifically is, uh, you know, do we have these, these sorts of, these sorts of heroes as, um, other conduits, uh, to the realm of the divine and that mm. that took off because the Romans were used to, or at least, uh, uh accustomed to, uh, praying to or asking favors of multiple different people rather than just a single Mm -hmm. god on high. Uh, I think that's an argument that could be made. So how how far did this persist then, you know, this this veneration of relics? Because you sort of associate it with much later times as well, don't you? Uh, 
Well, that's true. I think it, it, it persisted for quite some time. Um, so, for example, even during the Protestant Reformations, there's an interest in martyrs on the part of both Protestants and Catholics. Uh, John Fox, for example, in England, uh, who was uh, a church historian, uh, but his acts and monuments very quickly came to be known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he's not talking about the martyrs in a ritual or sort of uh, uh, a way that's focused on veneration, but he's interested in the stories of the martyrs by way of connecting stories of suffering through this sort of unbroken chain from Jesus through the apostles, uh, all the way up to the people who are currently being killed uh, in the 16th century. Um, but in this case, uh, by way of going against uh, the, the Roman Catholic mm. Church. So, I mean, the Roman mm. Catholic Church's uh, question, pointed question, barbed question of the reformers was, where was your church before Luther? So historians like Fox wanted to draw this unbroken line of suffering uh, to, you know, through all of the, the, the hidden church that wasn't just the, the Catholic practices over many, many centuries uh, by way of emphasizing that they weren't new and that they had just as much claim on, uh, on certainly on Jesus and on the apostles, but, but also even martyrs after that. And what's interesting also is that during uh, the upheaval of the Reformation, there were a lot of churches, uh, specifically in what's what's now Germany, Switzerland, uh, countries north of the Alps, that had their relics destroyed. And mm. they were then replaced by um, a lot of uh, entire skeletons that were dug up from the catacombs and then shipped north as this sort of skeletal army of the Roman Catholic Church by way of uh, replacing lost relics, um, a number of which you can go see that are full skeletons that have been amazingly and lovingly decorated, dressed, wrapped in jewels and gold, um, all all being done in the 16th and 17th century. So this isn't just something ancient, this interest in the martyrs. Mm. Where I am in Scotland, actually, in uh, Edinburgh and, and St. Andrews, there's quite a few X's on the cobbles where, you know, various martyrs in the Scottish Reformation were, were killed and, you know, a little oh. plaque next door. So, so in a way, they're sort of still very much with us here. Wonderful. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's also a, uh, a sideways nod at St. Andrew, uh, who was supposedly <laughs> killed on an X-shaped cross. And of course, that's, that's oh. Scotland's flag. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, guys, I certainly hope none of us face uh, flayings <laughs> or or lion feedings. I think uh, I think we can we can still be good people without coming to a terrible end. But uh, this has been yeah a, a really fascinating and, and somewhat gruesome look back. But thank you so much, Kyle, for for joining us and for our listeners again. Kyle's book is called Cult of the Dead: A Brief History of Christianity. Please run out and get it and learn all about this topic but um yeah that's it for this episode of biblical time machine and we will see you next time bye bye